Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app Hey everybody, I thought of an incentive that we could do, a little way that we can both benefit. Um, I've gotten a lot of feedback from from people saying that they um, would like longer, more in-depth um, interviews or more of them. I can't really do longer because I'm already taking people's time and it's already difficult to get uh, some of these people and to get them to commit for longer than an hour um, is just going to make... Um, everything kind of slow down and and i don't think at this point in the podcast that would be a sustainable thing but i can release more episodes it's a lot of work but i can do it so um i can put out some bonus episodes here and there i have a bank right now so i can release a few extras um if that's something that excites you um uh, you know just more content out there more things to learn this is a good thing so here's what i'm gonna do uh you guys go on give your reviews and write uh, write your reviews and do your ratings and everything on itunes even if you listen on a different device if you sign up for itunes or whatever to write the review as soon as i get a hundred um ratings on itunes and a hundred customer reviews on itunes i'm going to release a bonus episode for each of those milestones right now there's 52 ratings which is great this is a very new podcast thank you guys so much for going and taking the time to do that um and i know there's a million other things you have to do one of which is not listening to um a three minute uh intro before getting into um the meat of a podcast but um uh, 52 ratings we get that up to 100 i'm releasing a bonus episode right now i have 42 written reviews that's fantastic that's wonderful thank you again once i have 100 i'm going to release another bonus episode so those will be two bonus episodes coming out 
next week if you guys do that um so so get on there share tell your friends make sure they're rating it um and everything else as well do whatever you need to do and um and and yeah so that drives me and hopefully gives you guys incentive to go on there and do that for me that would be super awesome so um until then enjoy this um very paleo episode with aaron blaisdell everybody thanks for listening are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today my guest is aaron blaisdell professor of psychology at um, at UCLA, and he studies uh, comparative cognition. He also uh, is, uh, we'll get into this in a little bit, because I wanted to ask you about this, but he's the president of both the International Society for Comparative Psychology and president of the Ancestral um, uh, Health Society. And um, so two different presidents <laughs> actually two different past presidents at this point oh you're no longer uh, as we were talking of, before we, talking we started <laughs> uh, i have to yet to update many things on my website That's <laughs> i really apologize funny. i was uh, for the listeners i was like so are you a associate professor should i introduce you he's like no i'm a full professor now and uh, i was like oh maybe i did my research wrong and i looked at his website and then so we were just talking about how he hasn't updated anything uh, um, yeah. But so now you'll you'll have to go and update your website so that when this comes out and I'll have the link to your website, yeah. people can go and they can figure out what the hell you actually do currently. Uh, That's a good incentive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is um, first off? What is uh, comparative cognition? Oh well, first thank you for inviting me on oh, your show, yeah. Shane. Uh, thanks uh, for coming on. And uh, what is comparative cognition? It's basically what it says. You're comparing cognition among different entities. But what are the entities? And in the case of people who do research in comparative cognition, it is different species. Okay. So we're basically looking at how are the different animals, how do different animals think? That's kind of the nice way I like to put it. Mm. And you're you're studying a lot of um, rats, pigeons, and hermit crabs. That's right, directly. and the occasional undergraduate. And the oh, I have published course. some human research as well. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, I just learned last week. Um, this was my my fun takeaway uh, fact that I've been telling people um, uh, is that I I, I talked with um, a guy. Um, boss Rokers at um, the University of Madison and he does a lot of um, visual perception stuff mm-hmm. and we we're talking about 3D perception and how we determine distance and movement and whatnot <clears throat> and I learned that um, that the reason why pigeons bob their heads around is, oh, right. is for getting the sense of the 3D world oh partly part, I mean, part, part of the reason why right I mean like as they're walking yeah. And as they're walking forward, you see their head like bobs really quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my understanding is that what they're doing is that, you know how when you make a saccade 
and the whole world... I don't know what it is. An isocod. An isocod is when you shift your eyes from one place to another. It usually is a very ballistic, rapid movement. Okay. And so it's not like you're smoothly tracking and watching the scene go by. Really what happens is you're looking at the scene, and then you make an eye movement, and now you're looking at another scene. In between, it's kind of just a blur. The world goes... We don't perceive it as a blur, but the world basically becomes a big blur for that fraction of a second that the eye is moving. Right. All right? And so, and our brains are great. They edit these things out. Uh, and so that's what a pigeon. The brain still puts together this narrative of exactly. this even so flowing. Yeah, scene. your personal experience, your personal point of view experience is a continuous world that's not all jumbling every time you move your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's endlessly fascinating to me. So, so that's that's true with pigeons too. When they're walking forward, they don't just hold their heads steady and walk forward like many animals actually do. When they're walking forward, they have a view of the world on their retinas, and then as they, they let their body walk out underneath them, and then they shoot their head forward like a saccade to the next position and hold a steady position um, visually. And then the body walks underneath and catches up. So that's, a, that's why the, the head's bobbing. If you do the slow, ah. uh, slow down the video, that's what you could see is what they're doing. So, I, I, so how is that? Is it... Is it because they can't move their eyes? Uh, like I don't know a lot about the, the the hardware of the pigeon vision. I, why isn't uh, everything bobbing its head? Right. I, yeah, I, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I've never thought about why do pigeons do it. I'm guessing chickens do it. Chickens do it as well, he, he said. But yeah. when ducks are waddling along, it doesn't look like they're bobbing their heads, does it? So no, this is not interesting. Really. I never thought about this. Well, why pigeons and chickens but not ducks? Or, hmm. And why not cats while it's stalking something or, just, or a dog while it's trotting along? I'm going to try animal. bobbing my head more just in life. And <laughs> it see might not helps. work for you because you're not a pigeon. We'll see. <laughs> I mean, pigeons oh. are, are fascinating in many, for many reasons. and They're just so strange and alien a bird, at least from my perspective. Uh, yeah, well, tell me more about... I, I thought, here I was like, okay, and now I know why pigeons bob their heads. I know everything I need <laughs> to know about, about pigeons. But there's a lot more to them, huh? There is a lot to them. I mean, just even at the level of the hardware, their eyes, their um, retinas have, in each eye, they have two phobias. So you know how a human has one a phobia that's the center of your vision. Mm-hmm. So wherever you're centering your vision on, that's your, what you're doing is you're moving the fovea of the center part of your eye onto the pl- position in front. And that's where you have the best acuity, the best uh, discrimination of spatial um, perception. Yeah, we talked about kind of if you put your thumb out at arm's length ahead uh-huh. of you and um, the fovea is focusing on, is that, right. am I saying that correctly, like the You'd say the fovea is focusing on like the the width of your thumb is about. But I think the, that's about right. About the something detail. like that. Uh, it seems that sounds about right. So they have yeah. two. They have two uh, because it, what's interesting is if you think about the ecology of a pigeon, what they do is they. Um, one thing they do is they fly or they, they hang around in groups, the flocks, and then they could fly. And while they're doing that, their eyes are on the side of their head for the most part. And they have almost complete vision around their heads. That right? Not completely, awesome. but pretty close. And so most of their field of view is just with one eye. Each eye mm-hmm. sees a huge part, and there's very little overlap between the two eyes. Whereas a human, both of our eyes are facing forward on the front of our face, 
and we have a large degree of overlap. And that's where, where you get your binocular vision with spatial depth perception. But pigeons, what they need to do is scan the environment, both to monitor the other birds as they're flying, also to scan for predators while they're roosting. Right, wow. so if something's trying to sneak up from behind, they need to be able to easily monitor that and catch it, catch you know, be aware of that. Hmm. Now, so they have one phobia that's kind of it's a uh, it's a uh, far sighted, like it's better, it, it sees farther, um, um, has good spatial acuity for a further distance, and that's like in the center, the upper center of the eye itself, and then lower down and more closer to the beak. That part of the eye, there's a second fovea. And what that's for is when they're eating. Because what do they eat? They eat seed and grains on the ground. And the way they eat is they actually, when they identify a seed on the ground, then they go to peck at it. It's not as smooth. It's not like you reaching your hand and grab, picking something off the table or something where you have a smooth pursuit kind of of movement and you're tracking it as you're doing it. What they have is a, it's kind of like a saccade we just talked about. It's a yeah. ballistic movement. They, tr- they determine where the, the seed is. They determine how far it is from them. And then they execute a ballistic movement where they just shoot their head forward, grab it, and pick it up and hmm. throw it into their mouths, down their throats, basically. <laughs> and so what they do is they have this second fovea close its center and lower part of their eyes. So when they're looking at that seed, they have about 10% region of binocular overlap. They can judge the distance very accurately so that they don't jam their beak into the ground as they're having executing this ballistic movement to ah. pick something up. So this is like a... a nature's bifocals basically exactly i mean that's basically what it is and it's much it's myopic nearsighted right, right. so it's it's it really looks very it's center of uh, field of vision is really close to its mm. its face that's interesting i have been ever since i was i heard that and i was thinking about pigeons and vision and everything and i was thinking a lot of what a world would be like if you could see the 360 mm-hmm. panoramic vision all the time it's unfortunate that evolution didn't see fit to put eyes in the back of our heads i know sometimes i definitely wish i had that (laughs) especially walking down a dark alley at night you know in a strange (laughs) unfamiliar territory i want i want that 360 (laughs) vision for sure uh just too costly or something i guess or well it's also historical like what we call a phylogenetic explanation that because our ancestors didn't have such vision we don't have such vision in fact, it was an anthropologist, Matt Cartmill, back in the 60s or 70s, who said that the reason that humans have forward-facing eyes and the reason that all, most primates tend to have forward-facing eyes is because we're in, we came from an insectivore ancestor. And insectivores are catching insects, often very quickly. And so you have to have good spatial um, depth perception. And so you need a binocular overlap, just like other predators like owls and hawks and cats uh, and other predatory animals tend to have that use vision as their source of of catching prey their eyes tend to be in front of their face so that they have good depth perception uh, whereas prey species like deer and pigeons and things like that tend to have eyes more on the side so they have a wider view and they right. can see the predator coming from behind or from wherever. Ah. And so because humans yeah, are primates yeah. and primates came from an, in, an insectivore stock ancestrally, you know, back in the Eocene 50 million years ago, that that was kind of one of the determinants for the forward-facing eyes. 
that we retain. So it might not be that it's functional for us because humans specifically required it, although it turns out we do. Uh, we've made good use of it with hunting. But we have it because we're primates, and all primates have the forward-facing eyes. Okay. So now when my vegan friends are trying to convert me, I can be like, what do you think I got these forward-facing eyes for? There you go. It's just one of many traits you can use to to argue with your vegan friends. Uh, That's pretty much why I do this whole podcast, is just to figure out new arguments against my hey that's a great way to do it vegan so you bet you bet them on your show yeah yeah Uh, my 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 several vegan friends that are just trying to do something good for the world and i'm going out and just trying to find science well it turns out there's a lot of good science showing that raising cattle can do a lot of good for the world really Mm mm-hmm um, so, uh, yeah, wait, why don't we, um, get into, I love jumping around all over the place. I do too. Place. Okay. I try not to do it in my classes too much because, you know, I kind of have a, an agenda there, but you know. Yeah. My brain naturally goes off in lots of tangents because of, well, I wanted to ask you anyway, I, I was kind of hoping we would get, um, into, uh, some of this because for, I guess, and you used to be, um, the president of the ancestral health uh, society, right? Wearing and, my T-shirt now. And um, first off, is it <laughs> what are the what are the smear campaigns like when you're when you're campaigning for president of the <laughs> ancestral? Well, because I was a founding member of the ancestral health society, I uh, was basically I said, hey, I could be president uh, if you guys want to do, you know, treasurer and you, somebody else wants to do it. And then we all kind of came to a consensus, all the founding members. Oh, okay. So it's yeah. not quite as cutthroat as, it uh, hasn't, as our well, politi- U.S. political system. It wasn't. Then the, <laughs> the unfortunate <laughs> thing also is that I'm going to be the last president, even though I'm only past president. We, it, it's a long story. I won't bore you and the audience with this, but basically, we started as a nonprofit organization mm-hmm. to try and promote kind of not just Paleolithic style dieting, but um, the whole idea of evolutionary mismatch that many of the problems that we face today in modern society have to do with being living in an environment that's very different than our ancestral environment to which most of our adaptations would have been uh, favored. And that that can create a lot of problems, um, whether it's chronic stress, sleep issues, uh, diet issues uh, that cause all inflammatory responses. And, you know, the diseases of civilization seem to be rooted in these kinds of, of um, living outside of our normal ecology, our normal environment. Yeah. And so that, that's the point of the Ancestral Health Society is, is to basically promote, have a, a symposium once a year where we bring people together, hopefully from academics, trying to bring more academics into this, to discuss these issues um, in an academic framework. Because there's a million and one paleo blogs out there. Right. But I really wanted to have a society that was an academic society where we can actually discuss and debate the scientific ideas and the theoretical ideas um, without just jumping on a bandwagon. Right. Well, I mean, this is a subject that's incredibly fascinating to me. And I've, I've had... In my album um, that will be coming out in May 26, probably ish. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna give myself a quick plug. Um, I, I I talk a little bit about um, how just we kind of weren't 
built for the world that we've built for ourselves. And, uh, yes. and, and all of those mismatches are just endlessly fascinating to me. So how, how can raising cattle be beneficial? Right, so that's one good example. So if you look at actually the Great Plains and other grassland environments, I think I've read, you know, you read different things everywhere, but one thing I read said that there's an estimate of about 40% of the world's land mass is actually um, of these kind of prairie, plains, grassland, savanna kind of environments. And those environments, they're what they're called keystone species, certain species that have evolved into the, in that environment that play a very important part of the food web, basically the, the ecology. So top predators are one, wolves, lions, and other, you know, the big hunting predators are one. And the um, herding ruminants, are another one. What the ruminants do, because you think about it, this is a huge solar field, right? All that grass and shrub and browse is basically their solar panels. And but it's but they're made up of they're not made up of readily usable energy to a vertebrate like a mammal or a bird. It um, it's mostly cellulose that's stored. The the storage uh, form of the energy, like in grass, is as right. cellulose, and the woody things is as cellulose. What what herbivores with ruminants are able to do is harvest that energy, bring it inside where they have microbiome, uh, the the microbes in their um, rumen can actually break down the cellulose and transform the energy into a usable form. And by the way, guess what form it transforms into? Um, There are three types of macronutrients, carbohydrate, uh, fat, and protein. Protein. Nope. It gets some protein from there, but the cellulose that's broken down into a usable form isn't transferred and transformed into protein. Try again. <laughs> it's a multiple, it's okay. basically a free okay. response, uh, multiple choice here. Protein, fat, and what was the other one? Carbohydrate. Oh, um, I'm going to say fat then. You're no. actually right. It is fat. Now, because cellulose is considered a uh, form of carbohydrate. It's okay. fiber. Right, yeah. which is a, which is listed as you see on packages how much of the carbohydrate is sugars versus starch versus fiber. Right, well, it's a form of fiber, but it's a form that's um, insoluble uh, and not digestible. So the microbes break it down, and what they turn they eat a lot of it for their own energy, and then what the the remainder is mostly released as um, gases and the byproduct like methane and things, but also as free fatty acids. Hmm. So short, usually like short-chain fatty acids, like butyric acid, which is what's in butter, oh, all right. right? And so butter from grass-fed cows has a lot of butyric acid because that's the fatty acid that the cows generate. 85% of their calories, about estimated, from a grass-fed cow comes from its energy for you know, its own use. It comes is about 85% is fat. Hmm. Short-chain saturated fatty acids. So, okay, so getting back to the point, these ecosystems, that was another tangent. So these ecosystems uh, of the grasslands, um, they generate a big biomass of plant material storing energy in the form of cellulose. The herbivores with ruminants evolved the capacity, and they are everywhere in the world, in Africa, Asia, um, America, like the bison in America. Um, They evolved the ability to turn that into energy that they use for themselves, which in turn predators use, and which in turn also when they excrete 
uh, excretions into the ground, it feeds the, the the plants themselves. It feeds the microbes that the um, that are in the soil. It generates topsoil. Topsoil was generated by the interaction of grasslands, the grass itself, and the ruminants that feed on it. That's amazing. There's the right. circle of life. It everybody. is. And that's what the Alan Savory Institute is, one of these institutes that's, that's trying to, it's done a lot of research since the 70s into the science and the pasture management behind the science, behind it, and trying to make an effort to, uh, to let people understand that this is something we've been taking away We've been destroying our grasslands because what we've been doing is replacing that kind of prairie environment where cattle and ruminants were grazing, taking the ruminants off and then plowing it and growing annuals right. like um, all of our major crops like soy, corn, wheat, uh, uh, alfalfa, cotton, and all these things, these monocrops are actually – and they take the, the, the nutrients out of the topsoil and they basically destroy it over time. Right. Ah, yeah. so so now, so, yeah, so you tell really... your vegan friends and explain it this way, and 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 not that I have anything against veganism. Yeah. What I have it is is when it when people who are promoting misinformation or a biased interpretation without knowing the full um, or or greater amount of the the available knowledge about what we have about this, um, and promoting that as a reason why we should not eat meat. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even I, I, some of the philosophical things I get hung up on sometimes as well. But I guess that's beside. It's like, well, can I eat predators then? If like, because <laughs> aren't I saving more things? If like I'm eating predators, like, if you don't think I should eat what one kind of meat? Well, there's all these other things out there that are murdering it so the more you look at it the more you is what they call it paralysis by analysis the more you analyze it the more you realize i can't make a single move without (laughs) doing something dramatically wrong yeah yeah well (laughs) you know this is that kind of brings up um an issue with um and, and i guess this is kind of what you were trying to accomplish with um uh with the uh uh, the ancestral health society is that it is so okay all right the you hear about this paleo thing and um and you hear a lot of great stories and a lot of it seems to make a whole lot of sense and um i i mean I, uh, just uh, my uh my personal experience uh, about a year ago, I did like the first diet I've ever done in my mm. entire life. I've never done a diet before, and and it was like a paleo-ish mm-hmm. um, kind of thing through CrossFit. And I don't know; it was like a whole inclusive thing with like exercise and meditating, a and, lifestyle and change. It, really. it was a whole yeah. There was it wasn't just the diet. There was a whole bunch of other things mm-hmm. for like two months, but. The diet was the thing that was way different than anything else. Sure. I, I was exercising and stuff already. Um, and, uh, you know, anecdotal, but I did, I certainly did feel, uh, it, it could have been all of the other things that I was doing, mm-hmm. but I certainly did feel the best I've ever felt in my entire life. And like, I want to get back into doing that again. But the, the problem, um, I think from a lot of people's perspective is, you watch the news and there's like a new diet fad all the time and there's and mm-hmm. it seems like quote unquote scientists are always saying you know when the news is saying like a scientist 
Like you don't yeah. know like what kind of scientists they are, <laughs> right? Or, what, what or whether what or what the news report is that. is based on science itself. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so you you look for the news, and you know, there's all these ads everywhere for a mm-hmm. million different diet things, and it seems um, it seems very difficult to kind of figure out what the reality is and what the what the what's good advice and what's a scam and mm-hmm. what's well-meaning people that are just mistaken mm-hmm. and um so so could you set up a little bit of of kind of your views maybe of of um what you see as as the kind of the most effective paleo-ish lifestyle <laughs> that would be good for people's health but also kind of how um uh, what what the the foundation of all of this is so the thinking behind mm-hmm. going paleo well the thinking is easy and the thinking is that and just to um actually jump in on something else you were saying the paleolithic style diet isn't intended to be like a diet in the sense of like a weight loss diet it's more it's a lifestyle it's like what kind of diet do lions eat in the wild what kind of diet do elephants eat in the wild what's the natural diet of a pig in the wild What's the natural diet of a human in the wild? Maybe if we eat a, a species-appropriate diet, that is the range of foods that we include and the range of consumables we exclude, can actually, so that it matches what a natural human would eat, like a hunter-gatherer, let's say, or, or, or possibly our Paleolithic ancestors, to the degree we can figure that out. That's the term diet is meant, not as like, oh, I'm going to go on this weight loss diet. Um, that's not the kind of diet paleo diet means. Mm, yeah. So it's really a I lifestyle. I mean, I wasn't doing it. Yeah. For, I can't. Right. If I lost a, you don't need pound, to lose weight. Would, Me would, neither. And, 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 and be gone. It's so that so I just wanted to say that so that people know that that's what whenever they hear the term paleo, paleo diet, that's really what it's intended to mean. And the, and the gist is really that it's like what kind of foods do we seem to are we adapted to be eating and. In the sense that what kind of foods does our physiology and our health do well on and which kinds does it not do well on? And it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all and uh, because humans, um, there are a lot of individual differences for many reasons. We can go into that. It could be a whole podcast on just the individual, the reasons for individual differences in people and how they tolerate different diets. But the, the crux is this. It really is about taking out the foods that have shown on a population level at least to be relatively problematic like sugar added sugars refined flour refined items so the refining process is one where a food a whole food is taken apart into its constituents like the protein is extracted the uh, like whey protein isolate or casein protein which are added to, to foods or soy protein isolate or the carbohydrate is removed and then and refined or the um, uh, fat could be removed and then refined and then you take these refined ingredients and you can recombine them and create new foods so that's when you look at the supermarket and you look at anything that's in the box or in a bag generally in the middle center aisles of a supermarket you're looking at a whole range of ways that the food industry has refined whole foods, repackaged them along with other additives and things into a form that looks like food, but really it's not what people have been eating up until the Industrial Revolution. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so those are what I think of as and what people generally the consensus is in the paleo movement is that those are really the worst defenders. Okay. Right. So if you don't want to eat refined flour and that sort of like so what do you look for when you're but like, yeah. as far as as far as like watching what I eat and dieting and right. stuff, I'm like I'm so completely clueless i don't know what basically what i do because for myself i know what i've tested things on myself i've you know taken something out of my diet and then a month or two later reintroduced and i see how i feel i tend to do well if i just avoid all grains except occasionally some rice um and if i avoid so all breads all pastas i just don't eat anything that's made of flour Hmm. Because I know if I do, I start getting cravings, and it's usually cravings for carbohydrates, like I want to munch on some chips or get something sweet, where if I avoid eating those, those cravings go away. But they can come back quickly if I start introducing those refined flour or even regular whole grain, quote-unquote, breads that are made from flour. I still can start getting cravings. I remember. So I had two months where I hadn't had, it was like that, you know, I hadn't uh-huh. had any like pasta or anything. And I hadn't had any sugar or any, I mean, other than just regular fruit. But I wasn't even like, not even juice because it's just mm-hmm. taking the sugar mm-hmm. out and you know, losing all the fiber and everything. And uh, it, and it was two months. Like I said, felt the best I ever felt in my life. I didn't find it to be difficult or anything, uh-huh. really. Um, sometimes going out with friends and, yeah. like, making sure certain things on the menu. Like, I didn't want to feel like a pain in the butt. Uh, that was that was about how much it, you know, it set me back. It wasn't a big burden on, right. on me. And But anyway, two months later... Uh, feeling great and everything, and I go and I visit my parents' house, and my mom made all of these brownies. Oh, and, and yeah. And it was now, I was no longer, I had finished the two-month thing, so I was like, oh, I can have, like, a little <laughs> brownie. And I had, like, <laughs> first off, I'm, I'm not a dessert guy regularly anyway, mm-hmm. and and I have a small stomach anyway, and I'm not a guy that would eat a lot of baked goods and whatnot. But I had like a sliver of a brownie, and next thing I know, I just like tore through just like a half a tray of. I've Maybe never... you were brownie deficient. <laughs> I could have been <laughs> brownie deficient. I was I was starving from uh, my lack of brownies, and and yeah, but it was just it was like a dam broke in my uh-huh. head and and I just started shoving it in my face. Uh, it, and it, it's funny that it's like, I didn't miss any of that stuff when I was mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the the moment I introduced a little back into it. I've had the same experiences. <laughs> it, um, it's so similar to the way I hear, you know, it described about the experience of a drug addict yeah. or an alcoholic who's been, you know, clean for a long time, but one dose can really set them over the edge in terms of the cravings. There's some similarity, not to say that it's necessary, it's kind of contentious whether or not there are true food addictions or not, but it definitely has some semblance of similarity. That's interesting. Yeah, so... But, you know, the funny thing is, I can go a month without eating chicken, Right, I'll eat yeah. steaks and and other beef, and I might be eating pork and stuff. And then 
a month later, I'll be like, oh, tried some chicken, had some chicken. It's not like all of a sudden I fall off the bandwagon. I just need to eat as much chicken as possible. (laughs) Real whole foods or an apple. I could not eat fruit for months and months and months and then eat, you know, an apple or a banana. And it's delicious. It's tasty. It's sweet. Uh, in fact, it tastes much sweeter because I'm not normally eating so many really super sweet things. It's a very good but point. But it doesn't it doesn't trigger that same. problem. So whole foods, real foods that haven't been refined and repackaged, re, you know, put together in odd ways, it's, it doesn't have that effect. It really seems to be limited to these refined, highly processed foods. Huh. So is is that so? Like a, a drug addict, for example, the the. My understanding of my limited understanding of the of the kind of neuroscience of addiction is is there's um oh shoot it's been a while um since I've learned about this uh, it, what is it there's like oh man it, it, there's something hey, about you like it a, up. A glucose that uh, yeah I know <laughs> uh, I really backed myself into a corner here. It, there's there's something with um with the signal of certain neurons with um with some glucose level where where there's some sort of tipping point with addiction where it draws some sort of tolerance oh what is it um the dopamine response i really I know dopamine is is to my understanding involved in drug addiction yeah, yeah. Oh, so there's like these peaks in these dopamines, and it, and it, it keeps on peaking and peaking, and then um, and then as the tolerance comes, it doesn't peak as much, and then once you stop using drugs for a limited number of time, oh, it's like memory. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the the second those neurons like fire up again, um, they're prepared. I'll, I'll, they're prepared, and they mm-hmm. just reset right back to like seeing an old friend or something like that it's, yeah and i am butchering the neural but i but I you're just the phenomenology about it. you're describing the phenomenology really well i think yeah yeah and it's definitely that people are understanding better every year every month it seems like uh the 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 neurochemistry involved the neuro circuits involved and how all and how the many different mechanisms throughout the brain are colluding to make this kind of happen, these long-lasting memories, even if they seem to become latent, that with the triggers can bring them back. Right. So, so do you think that, in much the way that um, um, morphine or cocaine or something like that can be um, kind of fitting into the, uh, oh. oh, oh What's the word that I'm looking for? Like, like a, a supersaturated version of of natural chemicals. But um, yeah, I think that the 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 drugs of abuse, the ones that be we can become addicted to, I think that has been shown to be they they kind of it's almost like a supernormal stimulus. Yeah, it's yeah. Hijacking That's as I've I've heard it described as they're hijacking the reward centers that are normally uh, involved in the processing of natural rewards like foods and stuff that's what i was looking for that's my understanding so do you think that processed food could possibly be interacting with the brain in the same way i've 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 argued that that's the case i don't know the data on that but i'm i would be i've hypothesized that that must be the case that they're Mm. that they're like a super normal stimulus yeah, yeah. Right. And that they 
in, in that they they cause cravings and they cause hyper palatable consumption as they're more palatable than the norm than foods in the normal range of variation, and that that's why they're so much easier to kind of to use the analogy to the drug addiction to hijack those systems. Not I suspect that's the case. Hmm. Now I am doing research on with rats on the, the role of processed versus unprocessed foods on behavior and cognition. As, and then we want to take that in the direction of what, looking at what's going on in the nervous system, in the brains. Hmm. And so that's something we could start to look at, is are the same centers that are involved in reward and that get dysregulated through drug abuse, are those the ones that show differences in rats that have been on a chronic um, refined food diet compared to a whole food diet? So would you like put them on refined food diet for a while with the experimental group, put them on refined food diet for a mm-hmm. while, take them off of it so they like go through whatever withdrawal or whatever <laughs> they might go through and then and then maybe offer them a choice of, of the two different... Well, that's one, one way to do things. I mean, there's so many ways. To, there's so many angles at which you can probe this stuff experimentally. Um, and actually I have that condition. I just don't, haven't done any, a preference test with them yet, but we, I have had rats that have for like nine months have been on a refined, highly refined diet and another group of rats, the control group that's been on a more whole foods diet for that same nine month period. And then recently about six, five, six weeks ago, some of the rats in the refined diet were then switched to the control whole food diet. And yeah, and so we're going to start looking at what effect that has on their behavior, what effect that has in, in the brains. Yeah. That is fascinating. Yeah, because I, I mean, just the more that I think about it, um, that it, because it, I know what addiction is. I smoked cigarettes for 16 years. And that's um, a big I, addiction, like that cigarettes. Is. I mean, I had alcohol, I, I quit drinking a few years ago as well, but that was more like um, just, uh, habit that was like got me in trouble and stuff and <laughs> but it wasn't like an addiction addic- like oh i need it to it's all stop you didn't shaking have or shakes, whatever uh-huh. yeah it wasn't like that and i know it wasn't like that because cigarettes was like that wow a lot and and so now i'm but i guess the silver lining is is at least i know what that feeling felt like and and i'm a little bit mindful of it now and um it it's uh it's interesting because it was i feel like i go through similar things with like coffee Mm -hmm. i i love coffee and then sometimes you just have that personality type yeah oh oh, yeah very much i yeah yeah, i have a very addictive personality and i uh, i'm slightly impulsive and (laughs) uh but but yeah, I like coffee, but I'll get like coffee headaches and withdrawal and I'll like mm-hmm. crash. And, and again, that's just like a super stimulated. Uh, and so do you still drink like, coffee or do you? I still drink. I, I go back and forth, I, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like either I'm drinking a lot or none, none at all. Um, but, uh, but following that same logic, I do wonder, I mean, it's certainly how I felt. So when I... When I quit drinking, for example, it took about a month and I felt like um, I just quit drinking just for a month just to see what I would feel like. And I felt like a fog had been lifted 
um, mm, interesting from, from my mind. Like I just felt like everything was clearer and everything. And oh, how much were you drinking on like an average basis before um, you quit? Um, I was drinking. Oh boy, I was drinking <laughs> You're on, every on the spot. day. Uh, I was drinking like five or six nights a week, and three of those nights I would get like blackout. Um, Whoa! Drunk. Okay, that's intense. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a lot. <laughs> um, I was uh, when you're a stand-up comic. It's like everyone just wants to do shots with you and stuff after a show. And there's <laughs> so just... you didn't have to pay for this inebriation. No, 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 <laughs> and, and never. Well, it costed me. Well, yeah, <laughs> in you're lots right. of other ways. Sure, but the the drinks that got me there were all free. But but the experience of. I mean, that was a very long time. I think when I quit drinking for a month, it, it had probably been 10 years since I'd been a couple days without having mm-hmm. a drink or something. And and it really was like a fog had been lifted. And then I'd say another two months after that, I felt like a lot sharper. Mm-hmm. But it's that's all very hard to quantify without doing any tests or anything. Just being like, oh, I feel better. Like, what's that mean? And what's your mental? There are ways to quantify those kind of things. Sure. Yeah, but but like for me, just anecdotally, trying to remember, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, without the scientific rigor of actually quant- doing tests and quantifying it. But my memory of it was was that I was clearer and everything else. Well, I only bring it up because I felt similar-ish when I did that two months of mm-hmm. the paleo. And that's thing. how I felt when I switched into kind of a low-carb paleo diet. I had the same kind of increased clarity and improved and more consistent mood uh, and and think like sharper. Uh, yeah, I had that same kind of as if the brain was working better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, consistent mood. Yes, that's another uh, that's another one. Especially with like cigarettes and everything else, I remembered because I'd, <laughs> I'd smoke like two packs a day and then nothing for like a few days because mm-hmm. I'd be around a girlfriend. Or well, whatever. then you'd be like cycling through all kinds of reactions to it, the reactions. It, yeah, it was just like <laughs> I'm a very laid back guy, and all of a sudden I'm like, hey, why did I just snap on that person uh-huh. out of nowhere? Um, right. Huh. Well, that's your. Um, your I, I wasn't planning on talking about. Um, the paleo lifestyle this much and now i'm now it's all i want to talk because now i'm <laughs> now i'm like uh, i corrupted you uh <laughs> well yeah i don't know it's it's motivating me it makes me it you makes didn't me talk it about any again. of this when you had marlene zuck on your podcast who well, wrote that book paleo fantasy yeah i know well first off i wanted to i i hadn't first got people to give like your point of view of mm-hmm. it before uh, before I had her, so I was a little mindful of that. I wanted mm, people I to present the idea before I had her on to um, to bash uh, it, to bash it a little. <laughs> Which I don't think that she like. I talked. I shouldn't even say anything right now because she's not here to no, say anything. Right. But off the podcast, she kind of. Uh, I think she'd be comfortable with me saying right now that I don't think. I I think that the stuff that is presented online about what she said is mm-hmm. like the attention grabbing stuff. Whereas Could I be. don't it think probably, that I haven't had a chance to read her book are as, 
I don't think they're very extreme. Right. I think, okay. I think she's. Yeah, I couldn't say one thing or another. Really, yeah, yeah. I could only I only see what other people have been writing at this point. Right. Right. Yeah, right. but I had her on talking about parasites. Because well, that I was, was super, cool stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. Um, and uh, but but there is. I mean, it is with, with the paleo thing too. There's, there's like again getting back to the frustration. Like I was just reading the other day something called uh i think it's called orthorexia which is which is people that are overly concerned about what they're putting in their body and like measuring every single like the amount of grams that are in everything and and only eating uh, such things and 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 possibly you know uh, the possible drawbacks of this is you might be getting not getting enough diversity in your diet and you might mm-hmm. be overstressing. Is it worth the stress that I, I haven't had a chance to talk a lot about stress on my podcast yet. Mm-hmm. I want to get some future guests on like really. There's a that, lot of good stuff about stress. I, I, I can I give you some uh, recommendations for some folks to talk to as well. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Uh, afterwards, I have a yeah. few people in mind already. Um, but, but, but it's funny to be like, okay, what not only do you have to watch what you eat and exercise and do all this stuff, but now you also have to watch out because you might be watching too hard what yeah. you eat. You, you got to really be careful, but don't stress about it. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a person sitting there, like, with shock on their face, like, not knowing what to do. <laughs> it is just, uh, I don't right. know. It's, it's well, that's to... what I like about people like Michael Pollan and his food rules that he writes about, like, in defense of food. Uh, basically, you know, eat real food, you know, not too much. Uh, he says mostly plants. But I would say just as long as it's real food, you'll eat what you want to eat, and it should be okay for most of you. Um, yeah, uh, it, people make things way overly complex, and that's in, that's true in any field, and right. that's, that's definitely true in the in kind of the paleo uh, field. Uh, the the popularizers and the people following it can get so caught up in minutia that really the overall big picture is you know just try and eat things that are not very processed very much and figure out if there's anything that you're sensitive to like if almonds you know if they if you like almonds they can be healthy but if they cause you to have stomach upset then don't eat almonds eat something else uh, as a snack as a go-to snack maybe macadamia nuts will be fine you know so just tinker with things for yourself but the big brush strokes the broad brush strokes are just that avoiding the processed foods with added sugars and added refined oils and all that and just eat Meat, seafood, leafy greens, other vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, mm. basic stuff. And when you when you said when you're talking about the refined stuff earlier, and you mentioned whey protein, mm-hmm. um, okay, can we talk about this for a minute? Because this is <laughs> do something, you use whey protein? Well, for, <laughs> I have, and I want I want to add whey. Well, I I mean I've been out of commission with my foot and everything, mm-hmm. but I was like I had spent a year working out like crazy. I was in the best <laughs> shape of my life, and I'd really like to get back to that. But even when I was uh, I was eating the most I'd ever been eating and exercising like crazy, like I just couldn't mm-hmm. put any weight on. Uh, You're an I, ectomorph. Yeah, yeah. As I, they call I, it. I put on like five pounds or something like that, and mm-hmm. I was working out like hours a day well that's maybe part of a mistake maybe you're overdoing the workout stress can actually be uh, catabolic 
instead of anabolic, build, breaking down protein rather than building up. Mm. So if you're and CrossFit, I know it, people can who do CrossFit can get into doing it too much so that they don't have enough recovery period. And if you don't have enough recovery, because it's a very stressful thing when you're either working out heavy or doing some uh, high interval training or something ex- that's really exhausting, it's very stressful on the body. That's a good stress. That short-term stress is good, but you, you need a long-term recovery before you apply the next heavy stressor. And so I think that's where a lot of people can go wrong is if some is great, is good, then more will be better. If they want to build up muscle, they think the more the volume, the, the faster the process will go. And actually, it's kind of like a dose-response curve with, with a really short period of going from the right amount to being excessive. I think that might be tripping you up, maybe. Okay. Well, I mean, I wasn't. I got to that eventually, and I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't. I went from working out like a couple times a week, and then eventually got to like six <laughs> days a week or something like that. And nowhere. Come in, on, muscle budge. Yeah, nowhere in between any of that was I like. Nothing was working toward putting on. But also part of the thing is like CrossFit and that sort of stuff. Like basically everything is geared toward people losing weight um, uh, okay. you know, in our society because that's like the overall that's the broad norm. sweeping problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, um, but, but I, I, did, I did some whey proteins. I sometimes have the bars because I, I like those. Um, mm-hmm. But I would sometimes... Right after workout, because I, you know, I, I was asking them, what can I do to put on weight? And they're like, well, you could try protein and see if that works for you. Right. Um, I didn't like it. I mean, whatever. The taste was what it was. But, um, but it would upset my stomach sometimes. Uh, and then okay. I often felt like I couldn't eat as much real food mm-hmm. if i had the whey protein see context right? is everything you know one if you're not if if you can't handle whey then you found out that you can't then you should probably avoid it oh to me actually i do use it occasionally and okay. it doesn't seem to be have any problems for me um and so i don't need to avoid it but again it's an individual thing you know one person the uh, a supplement might be work for them for another person it won't work it and i Whey does have a lot of science behind it. I think pretty good what, science. Can you, what is like the basics of the science behind? I've, you know, it's not my area so much. Right. So I'm just kind of based on my reading of a bunch of the literature and reading other people who have thoroughly looked at that literature on that. It's generally a benign protein, isolated form of a protein um, that, but that it can have problems in certain people mm-hmm. uh, in terms of. Um, like what you're saying with the stomach problems and things like that. So I think this overall, I don't, I don't know specifics enough. I just know that I've come to the conclusion that it seems reasonably safe as far as an isolated, refined product. Um, compared to casein, which actually turns out, looks like there's a lot of science showing that casein, which is another protein isolated from, from milk, that is cheese, quesa, casein. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the, the protein that's often found in cheese. But they also add it, like the refined diet that I give to my rats, the protein is almost completely from casein. So it's an isolated um, protein from milk. It's not a whole protein that doesn't have all the amino acids because it's missing the whey. Whey and casein together kind of make a complete protein. So casein by itself seems to promote cancer. Oh, okay. So yes. stay away from Isolated that. form. 
Now, if in the context of the casing that you that would be in milk, and if you drink milk or eat yogurt that has some of both in it, let's say, then although milk I think is mostly whey protein, it doesn't seem to be have the same problem. It's when it's isolated. Those studies kind of show that have shown that it's um, increases the likelihood of of being of getting cancer. Uh, and the kind of research that they do with this is in rats, they'll feed them on a casein diet, and then they'll expose the rat to a, a carcinogen like aflatoxin, which is a mold toxin that often is on peanuts or corn. Hmm. And if they are on a casein diet compared to a casein-free, the ones on a casein diet tend to have a much higher susceptibility to for the cancer taking taking oh, hold. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, all right. So... It, oh, and and what's your what's your stance on dairy? Uh, that's a, one of those they call it a gray area. So yeah. I think as tolerated, the people tolerate it, then I think there's not really a problem. Um, I give my kids uh, dairy. I drink it occasionally. I do yogurt and cheese. I'm from Wisconsin. I there you go. You have to have dairy. Lots of, cheese, lots of cheddar. Yeah. Right. I mean, my ancestry partly is is from herding a herding ancestry. So I think, and I'm not lactose intolerant. I'm able to digest lactose just fine. So I think, you know, in the past ten thousand years or so, since um, some human groups have started agriculture. Dairy is one of those among herding pastoralist societies, right? I think people who come from that background have acquired some mutations that might help them deal with that. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, it, here's what we're going to do. I'm going <laughs> to have you plug the charity of the week, and then I want to ask you um, about, and we're going to change topics. Good. So, uh, <laughs> so what's the uh, charity that you wanted to plug? This so week? the charity is the Alan, Sa- oh, it's called the Savory Institute, started by Alan Savory. Uh, and he's, I think, at Harvard. And he was from South Africa. Um, I've seen a couple of good, or one good TED talk and a couple other talks by him that are excellent, where he really has done the research, starting to investigate what is a ruminant's role in a plains, and can you actually take areas of like Africa or in Australia that have been overfarmed by like monoculture, like uh, grass, uh, wheat farming or corn, that kind of stuff, that have been over-farmed and become desertified, like deserts. Mm -hmm. Can you reintroduce ruminants, cattle, for example, and can you regenerate topsoil and can you regenerate the ecosystem by introducing that species? And he has a whole bunch of examples of cases where they've done that and it's proven to be very effective at um, reclaiming those desertified areas and bringing uh, back water, some more moisture is held in the water. Uh, the cattle are producing food for people. They're uh, bringing back the ecosystem. So they're, so he's been the spearheading that um, idea that ruminants play a very important role. And we should be thinking about using them as a food source and as an environmental issue uh, to resolve a lot of environmental issues that have cropped up from human overuse. Of land, so it's the Savory Institute's all about that. Yeah, I I, I really like your solar panel um, <laughs> metaphor. I, I, that does make me think about. It's uh, a nice it's a little image to things. to really kind of you know frame what they're about. Yeah, yeah, um, that's interesting. And, and so uh, so grass fed. Uh, mm-hmm. Beef and stuff, that's the way to go. Grass fed beef, bison, uh, other ruminants like. Uh, um, like sheep and goats have great, delicious meat. 
Um, and then it's more than just that. It ends up being, that's part of it. Because if you look into it more, you see that there are other species that play important roles, like the pigs and the chickens. And if you ever go and look at any of the work by Joel Salatin, he has great talks about the, he runs a farm in Virginia called Polyface Farm. Polyface meaning many different types of species that work together to create an ecosystem where the input, the output from one species becomes the input for the next, which then becomes their output becomes the input for the next in full circle. Right. Um, and so I can go on a tangent on that. I, I'll probably clip it right now. But basically, so Alan Savory and then Joel Salatin, if you want, if people want to look up Joel Salatin and Polyface Farms, they're really at the forefront of uh, promoting this message of the role that animals actually play in environmentalism and our food supply. That's awesome. That's super important. Um, all right. So I want to ask you about hermit crabs. Uh, those cute little buggers. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with hermit crabs? I, I, yeah. I, I, did, I did all the research on hermit crabs I needed to do when I was in second grade. I, well, it was my I, first pet also was a hermit crab, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't do with hermit crabs the kind of work I do with rats and pigeons. They're just not going to be, you know, going and pressing a lever for for a food reinforcer, and they're not going to, you know, interact with a touchscreen in a sophisticated way. Um, It's really very basic behavioral processes, psychological processes I've been studying in hermit crabs, and the two I've been studying are a simple learning like habituation. So that's if if you hear if you get a new clock and the clock is, has a loud tick, at first you might notice it all the time. But over time, you start to tune it out. And that's a learning process called habituation. You kind of habituate, habituate to that background noise that's kind of, kind of constantly present. I, I walked into um, my... I, I currently have um, a couple of roommates uh, in a place, and, and, um, and I walked in the house uh, uh, the other day. I just got back off of the road, and... <laughs> And right away, I'm like, what's that beeping? <laughs> and, and they're like, what beeping? I'm like, you idiots. There's some fire alarm or smoke alarm or something. And I went. And it Seriously? The, it was the carbon monoxide detector. In, in been, your apartment? Yeah. It, had been beep- it was just low battery, fortunately. Okay. But yeah, they didn't even look to bother. There's an alarm. That's beeping, and they didn't bother to. They did just, they even notice it when they first heard it, or did I, they claim not to have even noticed it? I, I think I think they said that they noticed it. One of my roommates said he noticed it at first, but he was in the middle of some stuff, uh-huh. and then he uh, just habituated to it. Just became background to him after a while. But that was note like, to the industry that makes alarms on these kind of devices. Make them so that they change in different ways over time. Ah, that's a good so idea. So that if they're not being responded to because maybe somebody was going to like your roommate was, but then they by, by the time they got around to being able to do so, they've already habituated to it. It changes. Yeah. And then they can, that'll then, because habituation is very specific to the stimulus to which you've habituated. Right, so if it changes right, enough, right. you'll notice it again. Ah, that would be a clever that, that See, a this would be idea. the kind of thing that's really important to think about when we're designing things like yeah. they should talk to psychologists evolutionary biologists and actually this has been part of the mission of david wilson david sloan wilson at binghamton university an evolutionary uh psychologist there evolutionary biologist yeah who also taught he has this book called the neighborhood project and it's about building your communities if we know about how human uh psychology evolved then we would be better at trying to design those systems around us to meet our needs 
Right. Yeah. So this is an example of that. Yeah, that's um, that is a very good idea. Um, I, well, that and uh, I mean, you can go a step further, and I'm into like weird uh, like transhumanism stuff and whatnot. Like, I want I want robot <laughs> parts and everything. Well, oh, I okay. thought I wanted robot parts until they put hardware in my foot, and uh-huh. uh, and then I was like, no, oh, it's not there yet. Not the technology yet. Not there is, yet. It's not. Any, no. But but, but we, were, and we were talking about having eyes in the back of right. my head. You could like uh, as we're as we're building all these new technologies that is something that you could possibly right. intertwine in I mean imagine if you're wearing some Google glasses and then you had a little just a little biofilm on the back of your head that collected information and relayed it to the glasses creating uh, a 360 vision it wouldn't be invasive in the way that hardware like in your in your feet right right um, that's the technology I'd like to see happen. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I wonder if what our I wonder how our brains would then assimilate that, and mm-hmm. how how we would respond. To Hopefully, we wouldn't that. habituate to it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, our our brains are so plastic. I mean, even going back to a, a hundred years ago, a guy in, uh, named Bach Irita was um, actually developed devices to. Um, I, mean, I don't know if it was that far ago, but it was it was it was quite a while ago, and he developed devices that would allow a person who lost one sense to then use another sense to process that same information. So somebody who was blind, for example, he could put a, a sheet of like little pins on like the back of their hand or the back of their back. Um, and then have a camera mounted on the side of their shoulder or something, taking in an image in front of them and transmitting the 2D image onto the, their skin so that if something comes closer, it, it, you know, the, the amount of, of tactile stimulation grows right in size. Um, and he found that when people were wearing these devices, it, after a while of using them habitually, you can lunge at somebody and they would make a looming response. It, and then it was as if they, they've now started treating it as visual input, even though they've lost their eyesight completely. Yeah, yeah. The brain is very plastic. It does lots of marvelous things. I, I've read things uh, similar with like the, now they put like tongue depressors on or whatever. And it's like, I guess it feels like champagne bubbles or something like that on, on your tongue. Oh, I don't um, know about that. And Well, I think... The one that I heard about specifically was was more for correcting balance issues, but I oh. think they do similar things with. Um, uh, yeah, I think what was this? And I think it's in like. Pretty sure this is the book, "The Brain That Changes Itself," or something. I, don't um, I'm, I haven't read that, and, but I'm familiar with that title. Yeah, someone lost their sense of balance, and mm-hmm. so they they. Um, uh, they put a helmet on with all these different levels and gyrosphere things. Oh, and, gyroscopes and, and stuff. Gyroscopes. And, and then they had, yeah, some sort of, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like this thing that they put on their tongue. Okay. And then, like, depending on... It fed on, information to the tongue. Yeah, yeah. And and through a series of, like, electrodes or whatever, I guess it felt mm-hmm. like champagne bubbles is what the volunteers said it would feel like. And so if you're... If you were tilting your head back, mm-hmm. it would the bubbles would be in like the back of the tongue, okay, and forward the front of the tongue, and and using this for like twenty minutes, they would have uh, these residual effects of getting their sense of balance back for like sometimes days mm-hmm. 
and everything. That's but, that's uh, incredible. That's a variation on this kind of idea. Then, yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, and oh, what was? Oh, I want now. I want to tell this story just because it came up. Um, even though we should probably wrap up. I I had a similar thing. I told this on a podcast recently, but I I was in. I was staying with some people in. Um, like right on the border of Mexico in, in this city in South Texas. And I stayed with these people and I just met them and was doing some shows with this guy that lived at the house. And I went there and there's a bunch of people in this house and uh, or three people that lived in this house. One of them was a mariachi singer, by the way. <laughs> and another one was, a man- it doesn't matter, mariachi singer. That's all you need to know. And then, uh, and there's like a party there and I heard this beeping, same thing. I was like, there's an alarm going off here, and, and everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, there's some beeping going on once a minute, and I'm like, I'm getting ready for bed and, and everything, and he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. You'll just get used to it. I don't know what that is. <laughs> You'll just get used to it. I was like, okay. And so I went to bed, and every minute there's this loud alarm going off, and then um, at like four in the morning, hours later, finally, I was like, enough is enough, and I went, and I found this smoke alarm okay it was just a bad battery and a smoke alarm i take it down then the next day i'm like hey idiot you just need to change the battery in your smoke alarm and he goes oh is that what that was that's been going off for a year and a half wow so there was enough juice in that little battery to keep that part of it going (laughs) for a year and a half wow every minute there was a beep but then so then i'm mocking these guys for it and the the mariachi guy's like, yeah, I'm glad you said something because he was like a he had been Grammy nominated and stuff. He like he's a legit mariachi singer. Well, he had been sending music for like uh, for films and stuff like that to people, and they'd be like, oh, that was really great. But what's that beep? Because <laughs> 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 he had a studio. Oh, oh, that's a classic. This is like cla- costing him work and every. What's that condition called again? When you get well, used you mean to the it? habituation. Oh yeah, just habituation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so wow. Uh, anyway, uh, that that's that was in the back of my mind, and I I had to get it out. So um, so what are you doing? Just to wrap up here, since <laughs> I I always open up a bunch of topics, and then I never of finish course. everything. Well, it's not um, near this conversation. No, no, not at all. Um, fire alarms and robot vision and uh, and paleo diet and hermit crabs. I mean, <laughs> no. that's if that's not enough. I mean. <laughs> We have a kitchen sink in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I just wanted you to finish talking about what your what work you're doing on hermit crabs. Yeah, I've been looking at their visions partly, but uh, that's tough because we don't know how they see. So, but one way I, I studied the vision is to see because well, let me back up a step. One thing that we've done with some of the published work is to present a scary image on a screen. So basically what we do, so you've seen Clockwork Orange, right? Where, yeah. Where he's forced to favorites. watch really bad um, images on the, on the movie set, uh, on the movie screen. So we put our hermit crab in a little harness. It used to be a C-clamp. We've gotten a little bit better now. Um, to hold them in facing a screen, and then we present an image of a looming predator at them. And it causes them to hide into their shell, and then eventually they emerge again, kind of check out the situation. And then we wait till they emerge again, and we play the predator again, and it scares them back again. And we kind of use this as a technique to see 
when will they stop hiding? That is, when will they habituate to this image, uh, which they eventually do. Uh-huh. And so it's that setup. We wanted to understand, well, what are they seeing about the image? So we started more recently some experiments saying, well, what if we turn the image upside down? Uh, after they habituate it and we turn it upside down, do they show that they can discriminate the, the upside down a hawk? It's a picture of a hawk from the right side up. Or what if we change the color? Do Are they paying attention to color? Do they notice a color change? And so that's kind of the line of investigation we've been doing with them uh, recently. Oh, that's very cool. That's fun. Um, all right. Well, thank you for being a guest on the Here We Are podcast. You're very welcome. And uh, make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website, and I'll have links for his his uh, Aaron's website, which he'll be updating. Yes, uh, and by, it will the be updated by the time you see it. By the time that you guys are hearing this and see it, um, because he wasn't giving himself well. Now you're a full professor, but you're no longer a president. So there's nope. like, <laughs> it's, it's so I'll, I'll call it even. You're yeah. at the same. It's a zero sum game. Um, but thank you so much for being my guest. You're welcome, Shane. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you, guys, for listening. Next week on the program, Ant Talk. Some of you are already excited. You're chanting ants, 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 ants. Some of you have no idea why anyone would be excited about ants. Why would you be excited about this little pest of a thing? And you may not um, realize that ants are this amazing example of, of these individuals somehow creating complexity these little pea brain not even pea brain one ten thousandth the size of a pea or less brained things and these little selfish little buggers that are somehow able to organize themselves into this interesting altruistic society and it and it uh and it shows a lot about how societies are uh, organized in general and we get a lot of social structures and so yeah it's it's real uh, who who knew that such little things would lead to such big ideas it's a super super interesting episode i think all my episodes are interesting you may have picked up on that by now but i i bet that people do not realize just how interesting ants are some people do and they know and they're excited and they're going to learn stuff as well make sure and tune in next week to jennifer fuel with uh, um, at Arizona State University and then just pretend I had ended this five seconds ago on a good note rather than just flustering and trying to like oh, how do I close I never know like the last three words to close with and so I just sometimes end up uh, talking longer and you know that's your time and I apologize for taking advantage of it. But this is an, an additional 20 seconds, and I feel like either I've dug more of a hole or I've dug 
out of a hole, but I still like this place more than where we were now 40 seconds ago or so. Um, anyway, uh, I will talk to you guys next week and you are all wonderful. I imagine. Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. 